Now, why do we say love is a garden? Well, after all, the whole love story of the human race began in the garden. Their love was at its peak, and then it went into decline. And then finally, love was reaffirmed again in the garden. Hello, welcome to another episode of Unadulterated Theology, where today I'd like to address some further considerations about the philosophy of the human person that I've been addressing in this podcast. And one of the points that we're going to be touching on is this sort of personalist view of marriage. So there's going to be a lot of heady philosophy that's associated with this sort of view. So for those of you that do have a background in this sort of material, this is going to kind of fill in the sort of supplanted details on one's philosophy of marriage or understanding of marriage, especially if one at least comes from a a Christian position. But I hope to at least organize this discussion in a way to explicate it for a secular audience as well, because I think this is a a stronger and more robust way to understand the Christian view of conjugal union or of marriage more generally. So I want to kind of get into understanding that word better, conjugal union, incorporate some philosophers or theologians you may have never heard of before or may have never considered to invite into a conversation of marriage and of sex and of love. Um, The two main thinkers that I'm going to be borrowing from are from um, Thomas Aquinas, a doctor of the church, philosopher, and theologian who was born in 1225 and died in 1275, roughly, and also from Karol Watiwa, Polish theologian and philosopher who later came to be known as Pope John Paul II. So for those of you that are Reformed, buckle up. (laughs) Now to start with some general considerations. Through the voice of the playwright Aristophanes, Plato, the Greek philosopher in his work The Symposium, tells of a wonderful myth regarding the meaning of love. In the beginning, says Aristophanes, humans were comprised of, of having two halves, male halves and female halves hence having four arms, four legs, and two heads. Now, due to the authority of Zeus, he punishes the human race for misconduct and splits everyone into two pieces. Since then, wanderers are walking the earth in search of their other half. And in this story, we see a placement of homosexuals and heterosexuals on a similar plane of sexuality. As Aristophanes says, according to Plato, Quote, and so, when a person meets the half that is his very own, whatever his orientation, whether it's to young men or not, then something wonderful happens. The two are struck from their senses by love, by a sense of belonging to one another, and by desire, and they don't want to be separated from one another, not even for a moment. Now, while this mythic account of the meaning of love may contain some kind of romantic appeal to us, the issue isn't, of course, that simple. There is something more grandeur taking place in the mutual relationship of two lovers, namely a striving for the good, where the well-being and the self-realization of each partner are of overriding importance to one another. Now, as I mentioned already, Carol Watiwa, otherwise known as Pope John Paul II, argues in his book Love and Responsibility, which I believe, if I'm getting my dates right, he wrote in 1960, He says that I, as a person, desire the good for myself, and hence, in loving another person, I am also willing this similar good for another. And in doing so, I am not using them as a means to my own central end. As Watiwa says, quote, I may want another person to desire the same good which I myself desire. Obviously, the other must know this end of mine, recognize it as a good, and adopt it. 
If this happens, a special bond is established between me and this other person, the bond of a common good and of a common aim. This special bond does not mean merely that we both seek a common good. It also unites the persons involved internally and so constitutes the essential core around which any love must grow. Now, the significance of this point, that is, two individuals who consciously choose a common aim, is so that both individuals are on the similar footing of equality, and it precludes the possibility that one of them might be subordinated to the other. And so in this podcast, on this line of reasoning, within this context, I'd like to consider some broad sort of points about the nature of marriage, how this might approximately relate to same-sex relations, um, romantic love, courtship customs, and stuff like that. So first, some moral qualifications. Now, human actions, to be clear, are ordered to an end. In other words, we act insofar as we have a reason or purpose for doing that action. Now, this comes from the Aristotelian view where the good, that is the agathon uh, in Greek, is defined as that for the sake of which everything else is done. Now, in other words, Aristotle believed that different things are called good, not because they all contribute to one end, but because they all contribute to their respective ends. So, in other words, Aristotle did not restrict himself to the good as only applying to these respective ends. There is, furthermore, an overarching, comprehensive, ultimate end of all that human beings do. Now, suppose that you were to intend a certain end, say, climb a mountain, okay? Now, with that ultimate end in mind, you clarify steps to achieve that end. You bring supplies, food, tents, batteries, flashlights, and so on. And the point to stress is that those steps that you take that is, you function off of a rationale that has the ultimate end in view. So whenever you have an end such as climbing a mountain in mind, you never abandon that focus while you are creating steps towards reaching that end. So then we can distinguish between what we can call the utilitarian view and the personalist view. And the po this podcast is going to be primarily dedicated to expounding the personalist view. However, in contrast, the first view, we understand that man in his various activities makes use of the whole created universe, takes advantage of all its resources for ends which he sets for himself, for he alone understands them. That was quoting Watiwa. Now, with respect to, for example, the economic life, natural resources and so forth, using things for our own personal end as human beings is certainly a good thing. As Watiwa says, Intelligent human beings are only required not to destroy or squander these natural resources, but to use them with restraint, so as not to impede the natural development of man, but to ensure the coexistence of human societies in justice and harmony. Now, one question we should ask is how this whole thing changes once we apply them to other human beings. Is it right to regard a person as a means to an end? Now, the usage of a person as merely a means is precluded by the fact that they are a person. One who is a thinking subject can make decisions and can create natural aims or ends of his or her own. Now, this fundamental understanding of personhood is what Watiwa calls an inherent component of the natural order. Now, in contrast, the second view, the one which I'm going to take up, the personalistic view, love is understood as the opposite of using. Now, as argued prior, 
where my end to seek the good is adopted by another individual, and hence we both now consciously seek a common good, we may understand love as something exclusively portioned for human persons. That is, when we look at, at man, we discern in him an elemental need of the good, a natural drive and striving towards it. This does not necessarily mean that he is capable of loving. In animals, as well, we observe the manifestations of an instinct which is similarly directed. But instinct alone does not necessarily imply the ability to love. This capacity is, however, inherent in human beings and is bound up with their freedom of will. Now, man's capacity for love depends on his willingness consciously to seek a good together with others and subordinate himself to that good. Now, with this in context of a sexual ethic, moving to an environment where this involves a man and woman, that is, this principle is put into practice with marriage. For, in marriage, a man and woman unite in such a way that they become, as the Christians say in Genesis 2.24, they become one flesh. Now, consider what Watiwa has said in his Theology of the Body, particularly in November of 1979, regarding this unity of man and woman. He says, In this way, we find ourselves almost at the heart of the anthropological reality, that is, the reality of man, that has the name body. The words of Genesis 2 speak of it directly and for the first time in the following terms, Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The man uttered these words, as if it were only at the sight of the woman that he was able to identify and call by name what makes them visibly similar to each other, and at the same time what manifests humanity. This unity of man and woman, marriage that is, has such an end concerned with procreation, the family unit, the building of a future generation, the building and composition of a state, and so forth, and at the same time the con the continual flourishing and ripening of a relationship between two individuals in all the areas of activity which conjugal life includes is a good thing. Now, to borrow a helpful understanding from Robert George and others, marriage is a comprehensive union of persons. Now, it's not that you have to remember what this phrasing is. They're, scratch they're only giving a name to a certain idea here, but I like their description of it. That is that marriage is a comprehensive union of persons. So there's comprehensive union. Both of those words are at play. And this borrows from the personalistic view that I've been talking about in that it supposes that your body is an essential part of you. That is, since the body is a part of the human person, there is a difference in kind between vandalism and violation, between a mere destruction of property and a mutilation of bodies. Hence, this is why rape and even torture is particularly wrong due to mistreatment or abuse of the person and not merely a disruption of property, that is the body, like someone vandalizing a, a private residence, for example. Now, what kind of union otherwise are we talking about? Well, for one, it is a union where two individuals engage, engage each other, each other, each other, excuse me, by consent to achieve certain goods for common ends. This is how we understand marriage to be comprehensive, by unifying activity, unifying goods, and unifying commitment to one another. These two individuals are unified in mind and body, so that their wills are both unfolded to reveal shared lives and shared resources. 
Now, discussing more on this topic of unity, consider what Sheriff Gerges, Ryan Anderson, and Robert George explain at length in their book on marriage. Quote, marriage unites man and woman in pursuit of every basic kind of good. In particular, marriage calls for the wide-ranging cooperation of a shared domestic life, for it is uniquely ordered to having and rearing children. The comprehensive good of family life enriches a marriage as such, and lack of children is a lack for a marriage, in a way that is not true for best friends, roommates, or teammates. Now, I think one interesting point worth emphasizing here is the difference between conjugal unions. Now, conjugal just comes from the word conjugum, which literally means to yoke together. And there's a difference between conjugal relationships, that is marital relations, and romantic relationships. Now, for example, in marital or conjugal relationships between two individuals, they are actually concerned with decisions that extend beyond themselves. How will they feed, supply, and educate the offspring that their relationship rears, for example, if they have children? Uh, taxes, investments, and other obligations are decisions that face marital relationships. Whereas, contrastingly, and this isn't speaking critical of romanticism, by the way, romantic relationships involve individuals who do not typically take up these sort of considerations beyond themselves. That is, if the relationship is oriented towards the body of a mutual delight and mutual desire of gratifying bodily pleasures, those sorts of pursuits are not ordered within some specialized form of sexual morality, as they say, but rather there's just morality. In the bedroom, there are only obligations to the lover as there are to one's neighbor. Do not tread on their freedom. Do not deceive. Do not coerce. And above all, do no harm. But notice under this view, however, that this isn't an exclusion of hurt, but rather of harm. The sort of sexual selfishness that manifests itself in romantic relationships often, unsurprisingly, takes on characteristics of sexual or sensual sadism, if not some cases of sadomasochism. Now, the reason for this kind of formulation has to do with the inviting of means and ends conversation into how relations among the sexes are understood. In other words, the reason why I understand relationships or romantic relationships to be organized in that kind of way is because organizing the conversation of means and ends in relation to human persons is what fuels that sort of dichotomy. Now, to be charitable, this isn't an exhaustive characterization or formalization, however you want to say it, of the many various states of romantic relationships. However, it's important to highlight for my listeners, secular or not, that the Christian position of sex education isn't just preparation for marriage. Speaking of the physiological and medical effects of sex and how these aim for the union of moms and dads to have kids. No, rather, the Christian philosophy of sex education, if I can call it that, also does say something about sex as pleasure, sex as communion, as mystery, and as mutual understanding. In this way, a strict adherence to a life view known as romanticism, or what I have in mind here, the romantic view of relationships, can amount to the following problems, to summarize kind of here the whole episode. And I'm borrowing these observations from Albert Ellis, who wrote a brilliant essay on romantic love in 1962. Now, first is that romanticism, by its definition, is emphatically autonomous, that is, untrammeled, so to speak, and unrestricted. That is, romantic love, despite its fantasies and many desires yet to be filled, fulfilled, often runs up against limitations. 
that is, parental objections, financial difficulties, perhaps sexual taboos that differentiate the two from each other or from others socially and etc. Primarily, the church's teaching of certain courtship customs seems antithetical to romance, hence there's this problem that emerges of sexual dreams and how these customs sort of savagely oppose them. Now, on this point, um, there will be episodes which address Freud in some later episodes, so that is just worth mentioning on this. But second, romantic love is often based on societal and cultural norms, thanks to social media, television, journalism, and etc., rather than actually being representative of the realities of living or loving. Romantic love, in and of itself, cannot make a meaningful distinction between true love and infatuation, because the romantic relationship is often detached or oftentimes antithetical to obligations over time. That isn't to say it's opposed to obligations, period, just to future obligations to others. Third, romantic relationships under these last two views mentioned are based on some degree of fantasy, which drives to face away from reality instead of towards it. Now, psychology amply reminds us to fully accept reality as it is. That is, neurosis, to more or less degrees, includes a considerable amount of failing to recognize reality. Hence, if romantic relationships have a failure to recognize reality, there should be no surprise that neurosis of some kind will overlap. Now, as to the relation between sex and neurosis, again, this will be treated in another podcast episode. But moving on, fourthly and last... Romanticist ideals, which even include categories like purity and holy affection, can sometimes, not always, lead to perfectionistic goals, which lead to disillusionment and, for lack of a better phrase, disappointment as well. So that the church or people who have had bad experiences from the church on courtship, on sex, on love, and these kinds of relations should be of no surprise if they are falling trapped to this kind of failure of romanticism that I'm speaking of. That is, this sort of failure of romantic ideals is the sort of shortcoming that an inappropriate or naive view of a theology of the body would look like. Now, under this view, the body is oriented towards the lower passions, the realm that contains shame, filth, guilt, dirtiness, and so on. And the soul is oriented towards the higher, that is, towards purity, towards affection, towards unity, and so on. Now, this wrong view of the human person puts a split between man. The basis of this split has been to see neurotic abnormalities, that is, pertaining to the mind, as more indicative to the body, such that some misrelation within one's sexual behavior, identity, or performance has to do with their mind, because the two really become dissolved into one, the body and the mind. Hence, as Freud would say, the human subject, that is the id, is trying to man itself, manifest itself in the superego, that is the realm of ideals, the realm of social institutions, morality, cultural norms, and so on. However, there is a constant repression upon the id to make itself known, and this is the ego. Now, for Freud, he argued that the pleasure principle is that which the id attempts to ascend man to the higher realms of consciousness, of, of, of the superego, of social interactions, of practicing virtue and citizenship. However, that there are hindrances to these expressions, and thus this caused a, a sort of disruption within the self. 
And hence, that the modern world has spoken time and time again of anxiety, of the dizziness of freedom and of the possibilities in the world, of melancholy, of despair and depression. There are countless remedies for these which are ascribed to the body, in hopes that the soul will somehow be taken care of in the process. And let me be clear here, do not take these as side psychological issues for a sort of select niche bunch of individuals who have mental abnormalities. These are very much central attitudes, moods, and themes of human existence, not just confined to the world of philosophers, poets, and spiritualists, if you will, but to everyone who ascribes to the class human beings. Now, in future podcasts, we will deal more precisely with the nature of the relationship between the soul and the body. And furthermore, I'd like to examine what it means for the soul to be immaterial as well as immortal. Uh, Because I take this doctrine, which is of course advanced on religious grounds, but it's defended and adhered to on philosophical grounds, to be an essential or central understanding of the human person. So I'd like to expound a little bit more on the person as such and kind of work outward into sexuality and love. But of course, we have to start inward and talk about knowledge, talk about material constituents, talk about how the body relates to the soul. What is this thing called mind? How does it relate to the body? And so forth. So I'm excited for those episodes. Um, As I always say at the end of these podcasts, lectures, videos, and etc., God bless you for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the very end. Um, Be sure to follow and subscribe, if you haven't already, to my page, Hellenistic Christendom at WordPress, as well as Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and several other places where it's available. But of course, I have this podcast on adulterated theology, but also the Hellenistic Christendom podcast, which you should follow as well. But not to promote myself too much, but God bless you. Thank you so much. May God keep you and have a wonderful day.